Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your peace that are given to us in Jesus. And we know that one day every knee would bow and every voice will cry out that you are holy. And I pray that we would do that voluntarily today. That our lives would be the cry, holy is the Lord. Lord, would you give us guidance? Would you give us understanding in the word that we will be studying today? We need you. And Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear. I pray we would have eyes to see. I pray we would have hearts to believe and obey. And I pray for all the churches of this community that we would rise up under the banner of Jesus as Lord and we would proclaim with our lives as much as our words the holiness of our great God. I pray for Harry this morning and I I pray for the family of faith at Coastal Community that you'd give them great grace as they gather together and also give them great power as they scatter into Port St. John on mission for the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Revelation chapter two. Revelation of Jesus Christ chapter two. It's appropriate that we would be in this text this morning uh, because tolerance is one of the battle cries of our generation. The melting pot of America has turned into an amalgamation of every single idea under the sun. Our expectation as individuals has been to to acknowledge every idea as a valid idea, every belief as a valid belief. Our children are being taught to value tolerance more than truth. In 2008, there was an article in Christianity Today, and the article spoke of how there was a decline in biblical thinking in our churches, and it was due somewhat to a wrong understanding, or at least leading to a wrong understanding of tolerance. And I want to quote that article, or at least a part of it, to you this morning. The article said, quote, we have become tolerant about divorce we become tolerant about delinquency. We've become tolerant about wickedness in high places. We've become tolerant about immorality. We've become tolerant about crime. And we've become tolerant about godlessness. And the author went on to cite a book that had been published on what prominent people believe. Quote, 60 out of 100 did not even mention God. And only 11 out of 100 mentioned Jesus. There was a manifest tolerance toward soft character and broad-mindedness about morals. Characteristic of our day, we have been sapped of conviction, drained of our beliefs, and bereft of our faith. End quote. The author of that article was Billy Graham. And that 2008 article in Christianity Today was a reprint of Billy Graham's original article that was published in 1959, 60 years ago almost. You don't need a research study and you don't need a guy like me to tell you our culture hasn't gotten any better in the last 60 years. You and I live in a world where anything goes and depravity is celebrated and the only thing that our culture at large refuses to tolerate is anyone that they deem to be intolerant. And sadly, that way of thinking has infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ in unthinkable ways. And our text this morning has a message to us that should hit us square between the eyes. And the big idea of this passage of Scripture that I believe God laid on my heart, and as I was talking with some of our other pastors, Pastor Fies and I were talking, we really were looking, and and he helped me give clarity to some of these words. And, And I believe the big idea for this text is this. There is a tolerance that Jesus will not tolerate. 
There's a tolerance that Jesus will not tolerate. So let's go to the word of God. Revelation chapter two, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And, and all the churches will know, including this church, First Baptist Merritt Island, all the churches will know, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, you have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star who is Jesus himself. Revelation reveals Jesus as the morning star. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God for us today. I want us to start by noticing, and we've got to work as quickly as we can through this passage of Scripture, but let's start by seeing how Jesus commends this church in Thyatira. Look at verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's an incredible list of characteristics, isn't it? I don't know any church in, in, in the world today that wouldn't absolutely love to have Jesus Christ himself describe them that way. Wouldn't you love for Jesus to say that about First Baptist Merritt Island? That he knows us, he sees us, he's well acquainted with us. And you know what? It's, it's right for us desire to hear Jesus say that he sees in us a community of believers who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who love other people as though they're loving themselves. A, a group of people who serve selflessly and sacrificially. A, a church that's known for its faith. They believe Jesus. They obey obey Jesus. They live like everything Jesus has said is true. This group of people in their diversity who live with patience with one another. They don't demand to get their own way. They don't complain. They don't grumble. They don't throw a fit when everything isn't according to their preferences. Those are awesome things for Jesus to say about a church. And God help us that those would be true of each of us. They're God-honoring goals for our life. Jesus says, keep doing that. Keep pursuing those things. Keep staying strong in every single one of those areas. Do not give up any ground in your love, in your faith, in your patience, in your servants, in your endurance, in that your good works would keep getting better and better all the time. But that's not all that Jesus says, is it? 
He he goes on and says that those things in themselves, while they're good, God-honoring to be commended and celebrated, those things in themselves aren't enough to make us people whose lives, the way we act and live, please our Lord. Look at verse 20. It says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus says, with all of those good God-honoring things that are true about you and are going on in you and through you, there's something I absolutely cannot stand. You tolerate all the wrong things. There is a tolerance that Jesus will not tolerate. As a matter of fact, look how strongly Jesus is opposed to what's going on in Thyatira. Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her, this false teacher, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches, as a sign to all of the other churches to know this truth, to know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to his works. Jesus says, listen, I'm gonna throw this false teacher into sickness, and I will kill her children with death and I will give to everyone else everything they deserve for what they have done. That doesn't sound too tolerant to me. Jesus is making a message and he expressly tells us he wants it to be clear to all of the churches, including us. There's a tolerance Jesus will not tolerate. So what's going on here in Thyatira? How does that relate to us who's this Jezebel and what's she teaching and how are these Christians tolerating her in the wrong way so let's just walk through some of those questions looking at this text first I just want to acknowledge there is a lot of mystery about what was going on here in first century Thyatira we don't know many details if any other than what are in this text about this woman referred to as Jezebel most likely her real name wasn't Jezebel Can you imagine your parents naming you Jezebel? Listen, it would have been just as bad in first century as it is today because that is a reference to someone who lived in the Old Testament and did similar things. In the Old Testament, a king of Israel named Ahab married a foreign woman named Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel came from her foreign country with all of her foreign gods and foreign practices and she seduced or convinced Ahab and the people of Israel to set up worship to the god Baal and to the goddess Asherah. God was the, or Baal was supposedly the god over storms and rain and fertility in the soil and in people. Asherah was a goddess who was the, the mother goddess, a, a goddess of fertility and as you set up places of worship, high places of worship to those that God and that goddess, part of the worship of those gods of fertility was to practice terrible, immoral, sexual acts. That's what Jezebel did in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. And so in Thyatira, this woman was doing the same thing, something really similar to what Jezebel did in Israel. That's most likely why Jesus refers to her as Jezebel or as someone just like Jezebel. 
Jezebel. Her teaching was directly leading people to acknowledge or engage in the worship or condone the worship of false gods and to engage in or at least condone acts of sexual immorality. Now listen, there's there's a lot of mystery in how she was doing this. So I'm not gonna try and preach speculation this morning, but there are a couple of pieces that we can kind of put together and it might give us some backdrop here. Thyatira was a working class city. This is a blue collar town. Um, As a matter of fact, it was right there on a trade route going to Pergamum, the last church that we studied. And Pergamum was a very influential city. As a matter of fact, Pergamum set Thyatira in the place where it was for a very specific purpose. Thyatira had almost no defenses against approaching armies. They, They couldn't defend themselves. And the reason that Pergamum wanted that is because Thyatira stood in the way of any advancing armies and just had to last long enough to give the people of Pergamum a chance to either defend themselves or run away. It's sort of like if Pastor Richard and I are walking down uh, the, the road here and we encounter an alligator. I don't have to run faster than the alligator. I just have to run faster than Pastor Richard. Uh, his, his role in my life at that point of time is just occupy that alligator long enough to give me a chance to run away. And that's how Thyatira was viewed in light of these other cities, especially Pergamum. They, they were just there to occupy enemy and approaching armies long enough to give the other cities, especially Pergamum, a chance, a fighting chance to survive. So Thyatira was sort of a throwaway city in the eyes of other cities. It was filled with working class people, not rich, affluent people who wanted to preserve their homes and their lives. So these working class people made up this city and over time all of those working class people began to get really good at their crafts because they had to keep rebuilding their city every time it got torn down. So all of these really good craftsmen gathered in Thyatira and lived in the city and it became known for its different skills and trades and as a matter of fact what happened is that these trade unions and trade guilds begin to emerge. Every group of skilled working class people formed their own trade guild or or being in kind of like a, a union. And those trade guilds operated on more than just an economic level. They were a social, uh, religious economic group. They would meet regularly. They would, they would have a patron god or goddess that they would acknowledge. They would worship that god or goddess in those meetings as a trade guild. And they would offer sacrifices to that god or goddess, hoping that that patron god would bless their industry. And after they had offered these sacrifices as an act of worship, they would then gather around those sacrifices and eat the meat they'd sacrificed as a continuation as part of their worship. And you can see for the first century church how this became a a conflict. That would be similar to how the first century church operated in their worship. They would worship Jesus, offer him the sacrifice of praise, and then they would continue in a meal that would express the body and blood of Jesus, and they would partake of that meal as an act of worship. And so here in Thyatira, you have this, this, this dynamic 
going on where if you want to be employed in Thyatira, you have to join a trade union, a trade guild. And if you join the trade union, the trade guild, you have to participate in that sacrifice to this false god in some type of a pagan act of worship, often including acts of sexual immorality. And so here in Thyatira, the Christians were at a crossroad. You would either have a better economic environment for your family and participate at some level in sexual immorality and the worship of a false god or you would live out complete obedience to Jesus and struggle to find work of any kind. And that's most likely where Jezebel came in. She apparently started teaching some twisted version of the gospel that encouraged people that it was okay to engage in sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to the idols. With that background of Thyatira, it's most likely she was enticing them into these trade guilds by making it seem like, hey, it's okay, you have to provide for your families. It's okay, you can't stand that opposed to the cultural current. You you can worship a false god or at least you can gather around that table without actually meaning it in your heart. You can engage in in these activities. It's just your body, not your soul. All kinds of lies she may have been teaching them. And however she was leading them astray, it's happening. As a matter of fact, Jesus refers to her children in verse 23. And that's most likely the group of people in the church who were following her teaching and living out her immorality. Often in the New Testament, when an author talks about their children or the individuals who are their children within a church, they're talking about a group of people who are following a particular teaching. And so there are these people who are believing the message of this Jezebel, this false teacher. They're engaging in a perverted message of Jesus in a way that's causing them to act in immorality in some sort of fallen false worship. But everybody wasn't in that group. Look at verse 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say do not, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast. Stand strong until I return. So let me summarize really quickly to this point. There are at least three groups of people that Jesus has a message for in this letter to Thyatira. First, there's a group of people who still believe the true gospel and they are still living just the way they should and apparently they don't have the ability to remove this false teacher from their congregation or their church community. And Jesus says to those people, I'm coming to rescue you from this mess. I am coming to reward you for your faithfulness. Keep on keeping on. Stay faithful. Hold on to truth. Hold on to holiness. I'm coming. And when I do, here's what he says to them in in just a verse or two. You will reign with me in power. You hear that? You feel absolutely powerless right now. You can't remove her. You can't overthrow her, but you believe what's right. You're living in a way that's right. Hold on. Keep being faithful. I'm coming, and I'm going to give you my authority, and you will reign with me with a rod of iron and authority over. He says, not just this community, not just Thyatira. You will rule over the nations of the earth in the authority of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful message, isn't it? For all of us, listen, 
for all of us who feel powerless, right? For all of us who see trends that cause us alarm and feel powerless in it, Jesus says this, I'm coming, hold on, hold on. When I come, I will give you a rod of iron and you will rule, not just over your little communities and not just over these trade guilds and not just over your city and not just over your county. You'll rule over all the nations of the earth. I have no earthly idea how that's actually fully gonna work, but I can't wait till it does, right? How awesome is that? You are not powerless because you are the child of the king who gives his authority to you. Hold on. Stay faithful. I'm getting ready to preach. Watch out. This thing's going to get... I may take off my jacket. This could get old school. That's the first group of people. Second group of people are the people who include Jezebel and have fallen and embraced some version of Christianity, some version of a gospel that twists grace into a license to commit sin. And here's what Jesus says to them, I'm coming, and I'm coming to destroy you. When I come, your opportunity to turn to me will be over. You will receive what you deserve in your rebellion against me. That is a sobering thought, right? For all of us, and in some way, shape, or form, who've fallen prey to some version of grace that says it doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't matter what you do, and we've embraced that version of the gospel that's a perversion of the gospel, and it is no gospel. Jesus' message to us is clear. I am coming again, and when I arrive, your time for choosing will be over, and you will receive what you deserve. I will destroy you. That's the message of Jesus. I know that doesn't play well on national television, and it doesn't play well in most churches in America. I didn't write the Bible. All right? Some of you think I wrote the Bible. I didn't write the Bible. That's what Jesus says. The third group of people are the people who don't believe these lies. They would say, no, that's not true. No, that's not what the Bible says. No, that's not what Jesus said. And they're actually in a position to do something about it, to have this person removed from the church community, to, talk, to, to, to confront the false teaching that she is sharing. And instead of doing that, they choose to tolerate her. They choose to just let it go. It's none of my business. Hey, what's, what's it to me what they say, what they do, how they live, what they believe? What's it to me? Live and let die. And Jesus has a message. I'm coming. And when I come, I'm coming to expose you. So choose which side you're really on. Stop playing the middle ground. Stop tolerating this woman and her teaching and her deeds. The teaching of Jezebel was obviously heinous and wrong, but Jesus says so is the teaching that says it's not a big deal. There's a type of tolerance Jesus will not tolerate. And with the few moments that I have left, 
I just want to give you a few thoughts on how we avoid that kind of tolerance that Jesus will not tolerate, okay? Can you guys stay with me for just a few more minutes? Okay, well then just, I guess you'll leave if you don't. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up when most of you are gone. First, first, don't confuse this kind of tolerance with biblical love, mercy, grace, and kindness, Don't confuse those things. When Jesus says he won't tolerate a certain kind of tolerance, he isn't contradicting himself. He isn't undercutting everything else he has to say about love and mercy and grace and kindness. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that he did something. He has a message about this woman, Jezebel. Look at verse 21. Look what Jesus says. I gave her time to repent. Jesus showed her mercy and patience and kindness and grace. He gave her time to repent. She refused. And that's helpful for us because patient, biblical, mercy, grace, goodness, and love are only really good when they have as their goal repentance to Jesus from sin. That's what the difference is here. Biblical mercy, grace, love, patience has a goal. And the goal is repentance from sin to Jesus Christ as Lord. The word tolerant means to leave it to someone to do something, to allow someone to do something. Basically what it means is to sit back and knowingly allow somebody to do whatever they want and not care at all and not do any thing about it even if it will harm them in the end and you know what that is it's the opposite of love it's the opposite of grace it's the opposite of kindness if you love someone you want what's best for them if you're gracious you don't stand by while people you love destroy themselves if you're kind you will not be content to watch the people in your life crash and burn So when Jesus says he won't tolerate a certain kind of tolerance, it's not because he wants us to love people less. He wants us to love people too much to stand by idly while they destroy their own lives. For instance, when we're raising our children, we don't let them run wild and do whatever they want, or at least we shouldn't. I've seen some things at Disney World that make me think otherwise. That kind of tolerance that says to a child, do whatever you want, touch whatever you want, eat whatever you want, is not love, is not grace, is not kindness. Because ultimately what it does is instills into our children this thought and living that causes them to run headlong into self-destruction. If you authentically love and authentically show grace and authentically show kindness, you heap a mountain of Christ-like love and patience and mercy and grace and service onto people. A mountain of love and grace and mercy and patience and service onto people. But that grace and mercy and patience and love has a goal. And the goal is not live and let die. The goal is turn to Jesus and live. Turn to Jesus and live. Christ Jesus loves you, died for you, will save you, and transform you is the message of the gospel. And we should heap a mountain of patience, love, grace, and mercy, and service onto people in the name of that gospel with that as our goal. So don't mistake tolerance with biblical love and mercy and grace and patience and kindness. We want to show that in 
in measurable ways to the people of our community. The second is, is not only don't mistake tolerance with love, mercy, grace, patience, kindness. The second is this. Don't compromise gospel truth ever. Don't compromise gospel truth ever. Here's what I mean by that. There is freedom and liberty for us to disagree with each other on secondary matters, non-gospel issues, issues like whether the great tribulation will be seven literal years or maybe even a longer season of time. There are people who hold different views. We can get along and love each other and not throw stones if we disagree. That's a secondary non-gospel issue. But if someone starts to teach a gospel that says something like this, you are so covered by grace that it doesn't matter how you live. That's a lie, not the gospel. The gospel teaches that the grace that saves us is a grace that transforms us. And if the power of God that raises people from death to life hasn't raised you at all from the power of the death of sin, you need to be told something and you need to be told this. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Call on him to transform you. You don't need a twisted gospel that says you'll be just fine. It's not the gospel. If someone says you can commit sexual immorality of any kind, you'll be just fine. You can just ask for forgiveness later. That's a lie, not the gospel. Now that comes from the pit of hell. The gospel that saves is a gospel that says you are called to bow before Jesus Christ as Lord. Yes, he'll forgive. And yes, he'll keep forgiving. And yes, he'll forgive every sin, past, present, and future. But there is no forgiveness where there is no repentance and bowing before Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the gospel of Jesus. And if you hear someone preach a gospel that says what you need to do is clean your life up and do your very best and stop doing all of those things and you'll be just fine, that's a lie from the pit of hell as well. You have no power over sin in your life without Christ. You have no ability to live a life that's pleasing to God without the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. The gospel of grace is a gospel that gives to fallen, sinful, broken people like us, all of us just as guilty of sin as any of the rest of our community and says it is not about cleaning yourself up before you come to God. It is about the fact that you cannot come to God clean. He has to cleanse you himself. The gospel is gospel of redemption and free grace for all who call on the name of Jesus, not self-righteousness. We're not preaching to our culture a culture of morality, a a gospel of, of just live these ways and let's leave each other alone. The, the call is Jesus is your only hope and Jesus will do what only Jesus can do, namely save you, forgive you, and transform you. That's the fullness of the gospel. Not a false conversion to the, to the God of behavior, but to the God of grace. And we cannot compromise gospel truth ever, which means something for us. We have to know the gospel We have to know the gospel to stand up for the gospel and not compromise the gospel. And I'm deeply concerned with the biblical illiteracy of so-called Christians in our culture. 
I'll never forget when I was 18 or 19 years old. My mom and dad are here. They've been visiting during the month of February. Uh, Sure, hey, good job. You had me. You had me. Good job. I guess that's what we're clapping for. Uh, I'll never forget 18, 19 years old, uh, seeing dad sit down at a kitchen table with someone who had questions about their relationship with God. And I watched dad have a Bible, and he just kept turning from one passage of Scripture to the next. He, he, he gave the Bible to that person, and he said, now, here, you turn to this book, and you turn to that chapter, you turn to this verse. And over and over and over again, Dad kept showing these people, here are passages of Scripture, here's the verse, here's what the Bible says, here's what the gospel means, here's how this applies to your life. And I stood there, and I was, I was like watching your favorite team win the big game. I'm cheering for Dad, like, go, Dad, you're an all-star quarterback. Go, man, go. Why can't you play for, for Cleveland Browns, man? Let's go and then I realized something I couldn't do that it hit me like a ton of bricks I couldn't do that I didn't know the Bible well enough to sit down with someone and go back and forth to passages of scripture and show someone all of these facets of gospel truth that would assure their heart and would confront their sin and give them hope and grace and peace and joy in Jesus Christ and it ignited a fire in me that no matter how long it took, I wanted to know what the Bible said for myself, not because some guy stood up and told it to me. I wanted to be able to sit down and show someone what the Bible says because the greatest safeguard against compromising the truth of the gospel is to be thoroughly saturated with the gospel ourselves. And so I pray God will spark something in you that you will know the gospel you'll be fluent in the language of the Bible. You'll have a safeguard over your own heart, not because I've said any particular thing or shown you any particular thing, but because the Holy Spirit has given you understanding into the truth of the Word of God. The great safeguard against false gospel in the church of Jesus is a saturation of the true gospel in the lives of the people of the church of Jesus Christ. And I've got to keep moving on. Last thing is this. Don't continue living in the flow of cultural current. Don't continue living in the cultural current. In a culture that says sin is no big deal. Compromise is okay. Holiness doesn't matter. It'll be better for your career. It'll hit you better economically if you make these decisions and compromise in this way. That's not the call of Jesus Christ. He's calling us, church, to repent. To repent of sexual immorality. To to repent from saying that we love marriage but not pursuing God-honoring goals in our own marriage. To repent of not studying and knowing the Bible. To repent of loving money and things more than we really love God. To repent. Jesus is coming again, church, and our lives will be laid bare before him. And today is the day of repentance. When Christ returns, the time for choosing will be over. This is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Because there is a tolerance Jesus will not tolerate. And may God keep us from it. And may God show us where we're already succumbing to it in ways that we don't know. I feel led to, to just close in a time of prayer. And, and I, 
I want to pray for our, our, ourselves, our families, our church, that we would know and love and live the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would have the wisdom to know in a difficult, difficult age how to live out grace and mercy and love and peace and patience and service to unsaved people in our community and not demand that they change themselves by themselves because they can't and to know how to show them the gospel and demonstration and declaration. I'll be the first to admit it's unimaginably hard to know how to live that out. But God will give us grace as we seek his face. So church, we need to pray together. I'm gonna ask our pastors to go ahead and come down front. Some of you may wanna talk about your personal relationship with Jesus. You are realizing you will stand before God one day and you are not ready for that day to be today. If you're not certain of your relationship with God through a personal faith and dependence in Jesus, I wanna invite you to come and speak with one of our pastors. This is that day of salvation. I wanna invite you to come and speak with us. Others of you just need to pray. Just pray that God would build in you a a knowledge of the gospel, a a conviction for holiness and righteousness. Some need to repent. Many of you are are concerned about our community and our culture, our nation, our world, and God's stirring your heart to to, to pray for national revival and a great awakening. I just want us to pray however the Holy Spirit has stirred your heart to pray. These steps will be open for us to kneel together. You may want to bring someone with you, but let's spend some moments before we head out into this culture praying that God would equip us and enable us to head out into this culture for the glory of his name and for the grace and gospel of peace toward the people we'll encounter. So I'm gonna pray, and when I do, I'm gonna ask you, um, would you go ahead and join me in standing? Would you join me in standing so you can join me in prayer? And we're gonna spend these next few minutes praying for ourselves, for our community, for our nation, and the work of God among us. And these altars, I invite you to come and spend some time praying before you leave. Father, we need you. It is a sobering thing. And I know we all feel like we're up against the clock. Noon is coming and we have other things going on in our day. But I pray that you would guard our hearts from thinking there is something that is more pressing to us than falling before the face of Almighty God. But would you stir in us some solidity in our hearts that knows our only hope is that Jesus himself would renew and revive his church and his people and give a knowledge of the gospel and a wisdom to know how to live. Lord, would you grant us fidelity to your word? Lord, I pray for anyone in this place who isn't certain that if they were to stand before you, that they would be, they would be found righteous in your presence that they would be admitted into an eternity celebrating and enjoying you in heaven. Lord, I pray no one would leave this place without the knowledge of their salvation being certain through the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, stir our hearts to be a people of prayer and gospel passion and living in purity. Do that in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If God has stirred your heart into a season of prayer, I'm going to invite you to come and spend some time praying for our community, for our nation, for our church, and for your lives. Let's, let's continue in a spirit of prayerfulness this morning. Father, we, we ask you, would you make us wise? Would you make us bold? Would you make us holy? Would you make us compassionate? Would you make us servants in this community? Would you teach us how to love so that those that we authentically will grow to love will feel authentically loved by us? 
Father, would you enable us to see every man, woman, child not as an obstacle to holiness in this community, but as an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus in our life. Father, would you protect us from hatred? Would you protect us from, from bigotry, from, from a deep-rooted sense of disgust that's really hypocrisy? Father, would you allow us to care for and be concerned about the trajectory of our, our lives and our community and our children and our nation and our world? And God, would you please, would you please seal in our hearts a deep conviction around the truth that, Father, only Jesus can save. Our only hope is you. Help us to love the gospel more than we love our way of life. Help us to be repentant in our own lives, not standing at the edge of culture, cursing the darkness, but kneeling at the feet of Jesus as our Lord and Master who bought us and bowing our actions and our attitudes before him and saying, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us. Lead us in the path of everlasting righteousness. God, would you do that in us? Father, we're praying for a great awakening in our lifetime. We're asking you for a national revival that extends not just to the borders of this nation, but to the four corners of this globe. We have a heart for the peoples of this earth because you have a heart for the nations, God. Would you make us missionary men and women who live and love and share the gospel of Jesus Christ in authentic ways in this community and around the world? God, we need you. And Lord, I pray you would spare us from an apathy that would be more concerned about lunch than prayer. God, I pray you would spare us from an indifference that could not care less that our neighbors are dying and going to hell so long as we live in a nice house, so long as we can afford private education, so long as we can seclude ourselves on a campus called a church and live in isolation from those who need the gospel of Jesus and Jesus died to save. God, would you do that in us? Father, I've never seen a great awakening. I've never seen a a revival, but I'm asking you for it. Would you do it in us? Would you help us to stop playing church? Would you allow us to not just show up, get it done with and be inoculated for the rest of our week so that we don't have to think or care or love or serve or sacrifice for the name of Jesus. Would you do that in us? Would you do a work only you can do because when you do the work, you get the glory and our desire is that we would see in our lifetime a work that can only be explained. God has done it. Do it, Lord, I pray. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for those that are gathered in this room. I pray every man, woman, child under the sound of my voice would know and love and believe and live and share the gospel of Jesus. Father, would you send us out? Would we think of our five right now, those people in our life that you've called us to know and share the gospel with? Lord, would you help us to do that this week? Give us opportunity to reach into the life of an individual and love them for the sake of Jesus. Lord, we we trust that you're doing a work that only you can do and we know all will be well. All will be well. We've read the book and we know how it ends. You are a victorious, glorious king and we love and worship you and await your appearing and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.